you'll see that in the, some of the passages this morning. So we can go ahead and get started if you guys are okay with that. Hey guys, so we'll go ahead and get started if that's okay, I'm sorry. So we're going to go ahead and continue, um, but maybe just by way of, of uh, kind of checking in where we are. And, and some of you may not have seen when we started this study, but, and I put it in this week's notes. So if you do go to the website and you pull down the notes from, from today, about Wednesday, Rick, usually, if all goes well, I've kind of laid out the book, um, which may be helpful for you. We're really in a section now from that runs from Romans 3.21 and really runs all the way to, to the end of chapter 5 um, in Paul's mind. And, of course, we have our chapter breaks and our nice little, you know, delineations, but that wasn't the way it was with this letter. Um, so much of what is have benefited us from with those breaks and titles, subtitles, is an effort to, to, to really capture, in this case, Paul's thinking how he moves from, from subject to subject, from topic to topic. And that's, that is really important for those of you that love to study the scriptures with the author in mind, because the author is John, the author is Paul, and the, the two, a good Peter, James. The, the, it, these are all individual, unique men who had their own ways of thinking and writing, and it's beautifully illustrative in their writing. You look at the Johannine corpus versus the Pauline corpus. It's stunning. Paul is a very, uh, he'll, he'll put a thought out, um, he, he'll concentrate it with doctrine, and then he will unpack it. And in Paul's case, he unpacks much of it out of the Old Testament, of course. And that's so important as you begin to really think through and track with Paul in this book. But our, our section will run uh, really from, from 321 through 521 um, for the next, I'm not sure, uh, weeks. Um, what I really want to try to convey again is the magnitude of what is being revealed in the time that Paul is referring to, this but now, we've touched on the last several weeks, two weeks, um, but I don't think we can ever quite plumb the depths of the magnitude that is in Paul's mind when he says, but now. Um, and, and as I have studied, you know, the, the commentaries that I enjoy, they, they, have, they have spent enormous amounts of time, and I want to draw from that a little bit this morning particularly Dr. Boyce, because I think Dr. Boyce really pulls in so much of the thoughts and crystallizes them so, so well, so we can kind of launch our way into a little bit of a word study in the coming weeks. But first, let's, let's just let this passage fall on us again from Romans 3.21 through verse 26. If you want to read along with me, but now... The righteousness of God 
has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this present time is what we continue to try to focus our efforts on. And I think the simplest way to think through what Paul's saying here is that it is not that we have some new way for the saints to be saved. That, that's really important. There's a lot of discussion around, did God save the Old Testament saints different than he saved the New Testament saints? Right? Is, is God the same God? Right? Is that Genesis 3.15 one that their, their hope was in the same as the one who was on that cross? Yes. Was it through faith? Yes. It was taught through the patriarchs. And this is part of Paul's point. This is not some new way in which we are saved. It is God's grace now revealing to us in explicit ways how he has saved from the beginning of time. Because these things were a mystery, weren't they? Right? Before this babe came, and all of the fuss in Israel, and then the cross came, and then the resurrection came, and then the ascension came, it was a mystery. Who was this? What is this, Isaiah 53? What is this? Where does the law fit in? These are all the things that Paul is addressing for this church in Rome so that it can be addressed as it is taken out to the rest of the world. And it is so, so important. We also see from this section of scripture, and so I don't forget, I, I would encourage you guys to, in the midst of your Christmas studies, just read Ephesians 1 through 3. Read it through and through, multiple times, in the context of this study. Because Paul just pours everything I'm trying to help us understand out into the first three chapters of theology in that beautiful book. 
In Romans 16, 25 through 27, Paul again helps us, and this is part of how his thought just reverberates through this book. You see these thoughts, they just, there's waves of them that flow through this book if you can trace them down. Here's one of them on this topic in Romans 16, verse 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, I love that. My gospel, he says. And the preaching of Jesus Christ, and here it comes, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Who kept it secret? God did. God did. He kept it a mystery. And I think we can all say, and maybe Abraham is the best example, just the tremendous faith that the Old Testament saints had. Just think about Abraham when he raised that knife. What was he sure of? That God was going to do exactly what God said he was going to do because he's God. Because through the line of this son whom you are raising the knife to, Abraham, I will bring forth the Genesis 3.15.1. And Abraham knew and he trusted that even if he were to be required to slay that child, that 14-year-old-ish boy, the Lord would bring him back to life because the line was going to come right through there. That's faith. That we, I don't, right? Unless we're put into that situation and Filled by the Holy Spirit, that's a faith that's hard to comprehend, isn't it? That's the faith of these Old Testament saints. And it's a treasure for us to see that. I want you to, in light of this beautiful time of the year and the advent of our Lord, I want you to think about that. And then I want you to climb into the heart of this precious Old Testament saint who is experiencing everything I'm trying to convey and Paul's trying to convey in a way we can't, again, fully comprehend. But God just beautifully does these things. Look at with me for a minute in light of this but now and this dispensation. Look at Luke 2, maybe one of the most overlooked precious gems in the birth narrative of our Lord. Look at Luke 2, verse 25. And let me introduce you, possibly, in a new way to Simeon, who was experiencing this but now in the most unique and extraordinary of ways. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, verse 25 of Luke 2. And this man was righteous and devout. Waiting for what? The consolation of Israel. The Genesis 3.15 promise. The Abraham promise. The prophet's promise. All the way through to the end of the Old Testament promise. And it's been 450-ish years. And wham! Wham! Here, by the way, is an Old Testament precious saint 
And look how faithful he is to the scriptures and the promises of God. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, I don't know when that was said, when that was communicated, but I can imagine the very moment it was communicated, however the Spirit communicated it, this man's zeal must have just went through the roof of heaven. Just imagine, right? You have to try to imagine. These are real human beings, just like you and I, and they are experiencing these things in a very real way, right? Be Simeon for a moment. Verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple. And I'm sorry, when I think about the temple, what do you think about the temple in light of our Lord's ministry? Jeff, what do you think about the temple? Beautiful on the outside. And a den of thieves and robbers on the inside. Right? And that was true. That was our, our Lord. <laughs> but how many churches were there in Revelation? Seven. How many got severe condemnation? Five. How many of them had faithful saints in there being faithful to the Lord? All of them. And here's one of them in the midst of this temple and the Pharisees and all that would crucify our Lord and look how beautiful his faith is. Pray for that faith. Pray for those moments to be faithful to the Lord because this is a beautiful, motivating picture. And he came into the spirit, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And boy, did he bless God. Could you imagine that moment? And said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of who? Israel? No. That's a clue right there to what Paul is trying to communicate. The, the truths, the oracles that had been given to Israel are now going. They're going to go, just like I said they would go. And that's this but now that Paul's talking about. And Simeon is expressing, in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Thanks be to God for that, because that's us. That's us. And for glory to your people, Israel. Israel. 
And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And here comes Isaiah 53. And said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And Ryan, this is exactly what we were just talking about. What were those hearts right from the get-go? Find the baby, kill it. I don't care how many little Jewish babies, boys you have to kill. Kill him, for starters. Right? Just as the Word of God said. Let's just pray. Father, we just treasure you. We treasure your son. We treasure the spirit that illumines our hearts and our minds to these beautiful truths that are so beautiful, so bright, and yet also so dark and so uncomprehendable in their hatred towards you and hostility. And yet, Lord, you have revealed to us now the means by which you have saved from humanity from before the foundation of the world so that our Lord, our Savior, the second Adam, would be exalted and it would be through Christ alone that we would be saved. And we just praise you for the way you have revealed these things to us, brought them to the Gentiles, brought them into the church, form the church, and now preside over the church so that we can take this precious gospel to the ends of the earth so that every tongue, tribe, and nation will be represented in the kingdom. And we just praise you for this, Lord. And we do this now in your very precious name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to draw from Dr. Boyce on a, a couple of things that I think are very helpful to show just the way Paul has worked his way through this section. But I want to just read from Boyce's commentary on this, this particular section. He says, understanding the Bible depends in no small measure on understanding the Bible's main words. That's why we have word studies. That's why we have wonderful tools that help us understand what these words mean. And it's enormously important if we are truly going to give a witness of Christ and what God has done through Christ. But equally important, what has happened to me? Do I understand what God has done to me 17 years ago? when he just yanked me out of false religion, blinded to the sufficiency of Christ, and 
transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I understand what he did to do that? That's what these words have bound up in them. And Paul uses many of them in this section of scripture, right? Words like justification, redemption, faith, substitution, obedience, grace, propitiation, by his blood. He goes on to say, and this might be somewhat controversial in the church today, the visible church. I thought it was really important. No one can claim really to understand the Bible unless he or she knows something about the meaning of these words because it gets at the very heart of God's revelation to us as to how he saves us and what he saves us from. And if we don't know what we're saved from, can we really be sure we've been saved too? This is the point that Paul makes in the first section of this book. Have we come to Christ under the suffocating, no way out weight of condemnation before God? Or have we come in some other way that suggests that we have, different from everybody else Paul's talking about, something better about us that is than the whole world that he talks about in Romans 1.18. Be very careful with that. Examine ourselves with that. But also use that as a way to disciple people through that dark reality of condemnation. Right? Because a Christ without the condemnation is a little bit more of a mantelpiece that says, yeah, I got Jesus. But did I ever come to the absolute suffocating need for Christ? That's what Paul is going to great lengths in this section of Scripture to teach this church. He ties together in these two sections, and then he really unpacks it all the way out into the rest of this book. Because from chapter 6 on, we learn how we are being sanctified, right? But he takes us and he ties together wrath and he puts them right next to righteousness, right? Wrath and righteousness, condemnation and justification. And now you begin to see the pairing and the importance of these words. Because one is the kingdom of darkness residency. The other is the kingdom of light and how he actually moves us from one place to the other. From wrath to righteousness that Paul says so beautifully is not my own. This righteousness of God. From condemnation to justification. How can I be declared, how can Simeon be declared righteous? 
The same way all the other Old Testament saints were declared righteous. The same way we're declared righteous because of what Christ has accomplished and then is granted to us, right? This substitutionary work of the Lord. So if we want to really fully understand our own salvation and the ability to share that and the ability to then witness and disciple into that, these words become very important. Condemnation, justification. Boy, talk about a deep, lots of ink spilled subject. Bondage. Bondage of the will versus freedom in Christ. Slaves to sin versus slaves to righteousness. How does that work? Do we just, I know for many years, I, those words just went so wacky in my head, you kind of just hold yourself away from them a bit, right? The Spirit of the Lord wants us to understand these things, and they used Paul wonderfully, because who better could teach us the law and its condemnation until you encounter Christ and learn of his righteousness. That's why he says so emphatically, it was not my righteousness. Right? From bondage to freedom. And then here comes part of the mystery, which was Christ and the church. And the attribute of the church, which was haunted Paul, his whole ministry, was that the Jew and the Gentile would be what? One. One beautiful union of God's people in the church. And that was explosive in the days of Paul. Right? Just a couple things on those. In terms of Wrath and righteousness. We know from Romans 1.18 so well, the passage reads, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. And then he goes on to show how that godlessness and wickedness grows worse and worse as God turns them over and turns them over, and turns them over to a debased mind, right? Which is why this beautiful shift that he makes in Romans 3.21, uh, so powerful. Because he says, but now, in light of all of the wrath on humanity, we find, after every mouth is shut from Romans 3.20, that the righteousness of God is being manifested apart from the law that has condemned us. So important to see that in the thought process of Paul. With regard to condemnation and justification, Paul makes so clear in verse 22 through 24 of 3 that there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified freely by his grace. So he ties those two right together to make sure that we all know that all are condemned. And out of that condemnation, it is by grace and grace alone in Christ alone. I want to take you to a place that may seem a little surprising to you in light of the way the passage has been used. And I want you to think about this pair of condemnation and justification. We all know John 3.16 so very, very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right. We know it. It's quoted. People committed to their heart. But how often the rest of this passage is neglected. Here's why. Listen to this passage again in light of condemnation and justification. Think about what John is saying to us in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, there's that condemn word. So Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Let me ask the question. By what are we condemned? What means has God given us to condemn us? Unbelief is certainly part of it. The law. Jesus didn't come to condemn. The law already had condemned which is exactly what this passage says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. It is a pre-existing condition of humanity. That's why Romans 1, 18 through 3.20 is so important in our evangelism and Jesus makes it clear here because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son and this is the verdict the light has come into the world and here comes the bondage but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil and we have a very hard time in this society believing that and I've said it often and I think it's important as we raise our children and our grandchildren because they are being inundated by a world that wants to eviscerate this truth.
In Romans 7, 6, when we think about bondage and freedom, we see Paul says, but now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not of the old way in the written code, the law. The freedoms that are in Christ and the bondage of the will, unregenerate, that is a slave of sin. And the law puts that in our face all day long. When you came to your repentance, in which God revealed his son to you. What state were you in? The law had just utterly condemned you and there was no hope. And John 6 beautifully says, as we've talked, that is the point at which the father comes and says, but look what I have done through my son. And there is nothing brighter than that light in light of that condemnation. And that's what Paul is now turning our hearts to in this section. Back up just a little bit to Romans 6.22, and you'll see how this thought really permeates Paul all the way through this book. He says, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. There's another controversial, that doulos, right? Slaves to God. How many of us think of ourselves as slaves to God in light of freedom, right? But the freedom that we have, the beautiful freedom that we have is obedience within the word of God that gives us every liberty we could imagine that is pleasing to God, right? I want to touch on exclusion and inclusion, far off versus near, brought near. And this, of course, is one that Paul just really couldn't get over, right? But the scriptures are stunning about this. Look at uh, Ephesians 2.13 with me. And this is the, if you want to use the word dispensation, right? It's a gnarly word that gets very messy depending on who, what people think about dispensation, but it's simply a word that means stewardship over a given period of time, right? Paul is revealing somewhat of a new dispensation. And he says it in this beautiful book in Ephesians, all the way from 1-1 to, to the end of chapter 3, which I would again commend that to you. But he says in Ephesians 2.13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of 
Christ, one of the most dramatic things that have happened that just about got Paul killed multiple times was this fact that the dispensation of God at this point of the arrival of his son would introduce the church that had never been seen before. And that church would consist of Jews and Gentiles as one man, Paul says. And it was explosive to the religious order of his day. Literally, they hunted him down for this fact. This is us. This is the church, right? I want to just kind of close with a passage very similar to Ephesians 1 through 3, but it's in Galatians 3. 23, and with everything we've talked about this morning as we transition into a little bit of a word study around these words, I want to just let this passage fall on you. And I, I think those of you that have sat in here realize that I don't think anything teaches Scripture better than Scripture. I just don't. And I'm pretty sure God doesn't either, right? He's given us this wonderful revelation the very breath of God. And what we should see as we study the Bible from end to end is the beautiful harmony of the Bible. It's this big, beautiful tapestry that shows these various dispensations over time of how God has chosen, saved, and then revealed to those who were saved how he was saving them and through whom he was saving them. All to whose glory? Our Lord's. That's his central message, especially at this time. But look at the way Paul just beautifully unpacks this in this Galatians 3.23 all the way through 4.7, and then we'll, we'll close with one final thought. Now, before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Paul says in Romans 3.21, apart from the law, right? But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So up to this point, look how concentrated that is. That is everything we unpacked in five chapters of the book of Romans, right there in just those verses, right? We're under the law, we're condemned, we're saved through Christ. We're now being sanctified, so he reaches into Romans 6 and on. Verse 28, 
Here comes the unity in the church. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, and now he's going to throw us right back to the patriarchs, then you are Abraham's offspring. And I always think about the firstborn of many brethren. Jesus, the firstborn of many brethren. That's us. That's this family that is being created by those that are saved and placed into Christ. That's the beautiful imagery that is not just imagery. This is our heavenly family, and it is in the church that she is deposited, right? And there's no hierarchy here. No one is more important than anyone else in the church. We have different gifts. We have different purposes. We have different ministries. But Christ died for each one of us with his perfect life, right? How could any of us see any else in the body of Christ as lesser or greater, right? That's Paul's point. Verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And I love that passage. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. And here you are unsaved, but yet elect. Though he is the owner of everything. You, you see what he's saying? My unsaved, unsaved life before my regeneration did not forsake the inheritance that I had in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Without the scriptures, God revealing those things, we couldn't comprehend that. That is precisely what Paul is revealing about our Eternal position in Christ. Isn't that wonderful to think about? Now you tell me who's going to take that away from God. Nobody. I mean that the heir, as long as the, that he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Every one of us. But when the fullness of time, and there it is, and I, there's a fullness of time that is absolutely this but now when Christ was revealed in all these beautiful truths. But for everybody in here that has been raised by the Holy Spirit, there was a fullness of time for every one of us that was precisely determined by God from before the foundation of the world at just the right time, just the right set of circumstances to bring us to that condemnation and hopelessness in all the elementary principles of this world. I can't save myself despite everything my religion taught me my whole life, right? 
Thanks be to God for that. Paul couldn't, who better to teach this than Paul, Saul, the church-hating killer. Born under the law, but when the fullness of time had come, verse 4, had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And here's where Paul goes in so many other places, crying, Abba, Father, Papa. An affectionate reference to the God the Jew wouldn't even look at. We have the most intimate of relationships with the perfect father, the father that no matter how loving and well-intended our fathers were, could, could never be the father that we have in heaven, the teacher that we have in heaven. Right? So you are no longer a slave. There's your John 3, 17 through 21. But a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Let me just close with this thought from Dr. MacArthur. I just thought it was so precious and true. We can know God only because he first knew us. Just as we choose him only because he first chose us. John 6, 44. John 15, 16. We can only love him because he first loved us. Isn't that precious? This is what Paul's trying to convey to us. He's just saying, but now I'm going to show you what God has done to have saved for myself a people from all of eternity's past to all of eternity's future. And he gave it to us in the form of a helpless, defenseless, vulnerable baby that had to flee with his parents because the world wanted 